Is Catch Twenty Two the oldest book behind you? Uh, for on the shelf it is. That's what I, I mean. Just, yeah, I just grabbed some. Uh, I, I only got a few. It's in reverse. I only got a few physical um, hard case crime books. I see them. I see them up there. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, of course. And um, then I just grabbed some. Uh, I still, I got to get five Decembers. I was going to actually ask off here if I could buy an autographed copy because I love that book so much. <laughs> is is that possible? Do you guys do that? Um, yeah. And, you know, a thing that I do, I, I actually get a request like this maybe once every two weeks, somebody will write to me and ask how they can do that and what i tell them so i um i i have uh, no real compunctions about using the office supplies at my law firm so i have this nice label printer and so i i print out labels um and then uh sign my name on that and then i i have a little like a chinese name chop that makes it look extra special and so mm -hmm. i put that on and that way i can just mail it in an envelope and then you know, people can stick that into their own copy and they don't have to, we don't have to deal with the logistics of getting a book uh, to somebody. So if, if that works for you, I'm happy to do that. And I'm uh, I would be very happy, grateful. happy to do that for anyone watching this who has the wherewithal to track me down. <laughs> okay. So do you want me to save that last part? We're recording now, but I always record in case there's anything funny or kind of like bonus stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's uh, fine. Okay. Welcome to another episode of Dead Headspace. Brennan and Erica cannot join us here today, but they will be with us next week. That's not true, actually. Brennan will be with us next week. Erica will not. Um, today, we are talking to Charles Ardai. He's the founder and editor of uh, Hard Case Crime. Say hello, Charles. Hello, Charles. I know my <laughs> George Burns. <laughs> and today, we are talking with the author of Five Decembers, James, Ke James Kestrel. Say hello, James. Hey, nice to be with you. You too. Uh, thank you for being with us. Um, no surprise that it's uh, this podcaster is one of my favorite books. Um, I, I, you've seen the praise you've gotten for this book, not just in the U.S., which is incredible. Um, let's just dive into it. What got you? Actually, synopsis of the book, and then what got you into? Um, what kind of made you say, yeah, this is what I'm pursuing? Because it, it is such a wild ride, man. Well, thank you. Um, so synopsis of the book. This is a book. Um, it, it's a mystery uh, wrapped inside of sort of a war epic. And the, the main character is a Honolulu Police Department detective who gets uh, summoned out to the scene of a double murder on the North Shore of Oahu, um right before the attack on Pearl Harbor um and when he gets out to this uh basically a tool shed on a dairy farm he finds uh two dead bodies one a Caucasian young man and the other a young Japanese woman and though he initially cannot identify the woman he is uh quickly discovers that the the man is the nephew of Admiral Husband E. Kimmel, who was then the commander of Pearl Harbor. Um, and because of the importance of the, the victim in the case, the sort of business interests in Honolulu 
put it together uh, when when the main character McGrady finds clues that uh, lead him to believe that the killer has fled overseas on the Pan Am Clipper, the business community gets together the money to buy the very expensive ticket to send him out on the next flight and off he goes and he lands in Hong Kong um, right before the attacks on Pearl Harbor and, and also Hong Kong. And so uh, that throws an enormous wrench into his investigation, which he then spends the next several years dealing with. Um, and how, how I came to write the book. So this, this is the, the 10th novel I've written and the seventh I've published. And the, the ones that came before it um, were all, uh, they, they were on a much more compressed time span. There was sort of, you know, the kind of thriller where the whole thing happens in the space of a few days or, you know, a week at most. And, and those are fun. They're fun to write. You really keep the pace up, but I wanted to see, you know, what, what I could do in terms of character development, if I had a story that lasted over the course of several years and and I also wanted to be able to explore more settings and generally I just wanted to paint on a really big canvas and and I just wanted to see if I could pull that off and still have uh plot and tension that work like a thriller should work and at, at the time this was back in in 2018 um when I was when I started writing it at the time I was traveling a lot, um, probably helping lay the groundwork for future pandemics, because I was going between, like, in in one month, I went to DC, Tokyo, and Hong Kong, and then back to Tokyo, um, all from Hawaii. So like, I was, I was traveling a lot. And so I was spending a lot of time on planes looking out the window, and then in, in foreign cities, walking around and just sort of thinking about the history of these places and how they all tied together. And, and suddenly it occurred to me that, that with the right character uh, and the right time frame, I could tell a story in all of these places and maybe make it really interesting. And, and so that's what I set out to do. Um, wow. Yeah. So, so it's a, it's, it's absolutely an epic. It's a war epic. Um, I'd like to also know, uh, how long it took you to write it because it, it doesn't it, it seems like you got to put a lot a lot a lot of effort into this thing just making sense with all the different weaves you got man it, it's just uh it seems like you would have to have gone back into that story a lot so was there any outlining was it just like what was your process like is what i'm getting at. um yeah so i i don't outline at all um and Usually when I write a book, I, you know, I don't even know for sure that it's going to be a live birth until I get to about a hundred pages. And then after that, it seems like it's okay. In in this one, I had a pretty good idea going in where things were going to go, but I, I still didn't, I didn't even know who all my characters were going to be or what exactly the major plot developments were going to be other than, um, you know, one particular thing that happens kind of in the middle um and and so you know i i i had to do a lot of research for this book but i didn't want to get too carried away in the research that i never started writing the book so i get i did kind of like the bare minimum that was necessary to feel comfortable getting going and writing in that 
that time frame. And then I just started writing and then would do research as I was writing, like whenever particular things came up. And and the book wrote itself really quickly. Like I started it sometime in probably mid 2018. Um, and then and then it got momentum in August of 2018, and I was finished in February of 2019. So it it took me about six months to write max maybe a little less um but then um fortunately i had some major hang-ups getting it published and so that gave me lots of time to do uh many rewrites on it so um so i, I don't know if you count that in the amount of time it took me to write it or not um but the the initial draft was actually much much longer than than the the published version so in fact maybe maybe you shouldn't count that extra time because i was actually whittling off instead of writing <laughs> uh we had charles on the first time episode 148 that was uh came out may of 2022 so cl- close to um close to a year and uh we talked about five decembers um charles you don't have to go into yeah. super big detail but I'd like to hear the back and forth with with uh, you and James on where you came in, where you sure. came into play, and and just kind of what that talk went, um, what what that sounded like. So I I received uh, the book as a submission from an agent representing uh, the author, and when I heard that it was an epic war story, I thought it was unlikely to be a good fit for hard case crime because although I have my own personal interest in war stories. It's not generally what we publish. And Epic is in some ways the antithesis of what hard case crime exists to do. Our books tend to be short. They tend to be 60,000 words, not 120,000. So an example of something we wouldn't publish would be The Winds of War, uh, you know, Herman Woke, James Michener, great books, but they're not what we do. And so my first inkling was to, uh, to just say no. And I always read into any submission we get. I was going to just read a few pages and I kept, you know, when when there's a book I expect to say no to, uh, I want it to get bad quickly. You know, if it's going to be bad, I want it to be bad on page one so I don't have to read page two. And I was at my in-law's house in DC and uh, sat down to read it. And uh, to my enormous frustration, the opening scene was good. And I thought, well, okay, fine. That's one scene. I won't walk you through it scene by scene, but every time I waited for it to get bad, it didn't get bad. It got better and better. Uh, And when I got about halfway through the book, I I knew that it was something very special. It's extremely good, uh, extremely well-written, gripping, memorable uh, for the first 100, 200 pages. But then it turns into something uh, very special, very unusual, audacious, and successful in the second half. Around the midpoint, there's a real surprise. And... uh, in the second half, it becomes truly heartbreaking. Uh, it, it's a beautiful book with wonderful character moments. And uh, it really breaks your heart in the way the best novels do. Not just the best thrillers, not just the best mysteries, but the best novels you'll ever read, period. So one of the reasons I'm very grateful to be on this uh, episode, you could have done it just with uh, James. Uh, but the reason I'm glad to be on this episode, other than having an excuse to see both of you, is that there are things I can say about the book that because of uh, excessive modesty or 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 uh, or what have you, uh, the author couldn't say himself. This is an outstanding mm-hmm. book. Uh, when I finished reading it and realized just how good it was, 
um, I felt like a poker player who had just been dealt a really good hand. You know that feeling when you're sitting at a poker table and you think, okay, one in 10,000 hands is this good. And it just came to me. And now all I have to do is play it. I don't have to hope for anything. I don't have to think, well, will I get the straight? I've got the straight. I've got the flush. And so I went out into the world knowing that all I had to do was show it to people and they would have the same reaction that I did. Uh, Plato said, any episode of any podcast is incomplete without a sentence beginning. Plato said, I believe it was Plato. The truth cannot be told so as to be understood and not be believed. So here was a case where all I had to do was say this book was as good as it actually was and get somebody to try reading it, and they would agree with me. This was the easiest job in the world. And so I went out to the world, I went out to authors, and I went out to booksellers, and I went out to various people, and I said, every publisher tells you this is a special book every time, but this one really is. Just read it. And without fail, people would come back and say, oh, my God, that was that was you. You said it was good, but I just I didn't believe you. And then it turned out to be really good. So anyway, the, the book was outstanding, quite likely the best we've ever published, certainly one of the very few uh, in the top echelon. And uh, the only thing I regret is that it'll be very, very hard, maybe impossible to top it. You know, so how do you keep going after you publish a book this good? What do you know. publish next? Uh, but, you know, we, we are still out there still publishing books, but it's going to be hard to come up with something better than five Decembers. Challenge Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> and, you know, each author, they're, they're welcome to take a crack at it, but it, it's awfully hard. Yeah. What do you have to say to that, James? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, that's really touching. I, I had never heard the story of how he first uh, read it. I mean, obviously, I knew my agent gave it to him. Um, the before my agent got it to Charles, she had given it to some somewhere between twenty four and twenty six other publishers who had uh, uniformly turned it down. Um, <laughs> I can't believe it. Including my, I had a my previous publisher under a different name. I had published four books with them, and my editor with them didn't even finish reading it before she turned it down. Wow! And and the the reason for that was the marketing departments because my my previous four books, each one had sold less than the last, and and the last one had sold, uh, you know, just a you know fewer copies than you could fit in the trunk of my car. Um, and you have so, to know he has a very large car. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, um, so yeah, they, they just, they just didn't, they weren't interested in it at all. Um, so when we went to Charles, I, we didn't have a pseudonym yet, but we, we told him, I believe from the outset that we were willing to change my name, uh, and so that we could come out to the world with this book without sort of the the baggage of my other name the marketing baggage um not, not it's not like anyone has canceled me for reasons other than sales it was <laughs> yeah, just yeah, sales yeah. um and and uh so charles liked that idea and so then we we came up with the the new name and i became james kestrel the successful author so that, that was um it, it it was it was very uh 
satisfying to me in the end to see how the book was received by people because the the first year and a half or so of trying to get it published was really demoralizing but it did it gave, it gave me lots of time to keep working on it because you know one of the things that I had become aware of from publishing other books is that you get these 2 a.m. emails from weirdos who don't have anything better to do than to tell you that you don't understand the difference between concrete and cement, but that they have, <laughs> you know, they have a PhD in cement from Georgia Tech, and you know, I'm here to explain it to you. And so I was thinking, like, oh shit, like I just wrote a book about World War II, and like, if you think the concrete guys are nuts, like, wait till <laughs> you get to the World War II people. And so, so I just wanted to like be able to fact check everything. And and then even after Charles picked it up, you know, the the pace that publishing moves at, we still had lots of time. Um so so I had about another year uh to you know run things down and you know find out if the F4F Wildcat had foldable wingtips in 1941 or not and that kind of thing. And and uh and so it, it gave me a lot of peace of mind knowing that I had had that amount of time to just sort of vet it before it went out. Basically until the last minute, I, I think uh, more or less until the day we sent it to print, you had, were still finding one or another little, little. Right. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah. And then, and then after you told me that it was no longer possible to do that, I stopped looking. So I don't know if, but I, so far I have received one email one unsolicited email pointing out an error. Um, and that was from a, a well-known historian and former diplomat who pointed out that probably because in my other life, I'm a lawyer, I had uh, uh, switched around the term for a diplomat, a diplomat consul general, and instead referred to somebody as the general counsel. Um, <laughs> And and that guy ended up offering me a blurb to the book uh, and an invitation to meet him at the Navy Club if I'm ever in D.C. So that was not not one of those 2 a.m. emails that I fear. It was actually a nice one. That's awesome. So you've gotten blurbs from uh, Stephen King, Megan Abbott, Dennis Lehane, and, uh, and Don Winslow, to name a few. But those, I think, would be the top four. For this book alone, what... What's that feel like? And then that's not even mentioned in the award you got last year. Oh yeah, I mean it. It, it feels marvelous. Um, I, Stephen King had blurbed one of my other books before, um, uh, early on back in 2016, mm -hmm. and I, I don't, I don't think he was aware of the pseudonym, so I don't think he knew <laughs> that he had blurbed a previous book of mine when he came across this new one um anyway so that, that was really nice to see that i had um, suckered him twice into reading a book of mine <laughs> um do you think that you're gonna pursue more historical fiction because you're really good at it <laughs> um i yeah i i would certainly love to and I, I might be kind of locked into that now because so this book was published in Japan uh, back in December and I, I still haven't gotten my copy yet, but I was talking to a friend of mine in Japan who had picked it up and he read it and he told me that there's a foreword in it and, and the foreword gives historical context and background to the book. But also apparently whoever wrote the foreword 
gets on the internet and watches interviews like this, and I don't know where or when, but somewhere in some interview with some guy, I mentioned that I was thinking about writing a sequel to Five Decembers where the main character would be Joe McGrady's daughter. So anyway, the Japanese forward says that there's going to be a sequel to Five Decembers where the main character is Joe McGrady's daughter. Oh I, don't, I mean, I can't piss off the Japanese, so I might have to just go out and do it at this point. But it actually sounds quite interesting. Uh, how old would she be? Uh, well, you know, old enough to be the main character in a mystery novel. So let's say she's twenty at least. So that would yeah, be I mean, the, the, the thought was that it, she it would it would be set in the in the mid to late sixties, right? Um, which would be an interesting point in history for Hawaii because you know Hawaii was this huge staging point for America to get into World War II, and it served the same purpose for the Vietnam War, and you know they. And most of the troops involved in Vietnam touched on Hawaii in some way or another. And so it, it would be interesting to set something there and, you know, maybe Taiwan and Vietnam, but I don't know. That sounds quite it, interesting. It, it, is, it is a lot easier to find Vietnam vets that I can talk to than, you know, World War II vets are a little harder to come across these days, unfortunately. Well, so you have the civil rights that whole movement during that time that'd be that'd be really interesting plus what what year did you say 65 yeah some somewhere in there um it, you know it would, as i researched the idea for this book it was a little daunting because giving uh you know a joe mcgrady daughter character any kind of job as a police officer would be historically inaccurate because I don't think HPD had a female cop who wasn't a meter maid until like 1980 or something. Um, and same for most police departments, probably. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's still something I've been giving a lot of thought to. I kind of, between uh, the difficulty in getting this book published and then the pandemic and some other fires in my life, I, I have not been writing and I'm really looking forward to getting back into writing. I have a, a, a master plan for how I'm going to do that, but I need to, to pull that off and then I can, I can get back into writing. So hopefully I'll involve that. I, I would like to, to write that book. I would love to see it. I, I will try to take some pressure off your shoulders by pointing out that I bought a uh, cast album of The Music Man at one point, an ancient LP. And in the liner notes, it referred to Meredith Wilson writing a sequel to The Music Man. As far as I can tell, that sequel never got written. <laughs> but I spent years trying to find it because it was in the liner notes. It had to be true, right? Right. Uh, apparently never wrote it. Yeah, and George R. R. Martin said that uh, in his last Game of Thrones book that When's a Winner would be here. And, you know, sure enough, the show came and went, and still, Winner's not here yet. So, uh, right. so no no pressure. That said, it right. sounds like a very interesting book, and I, I, would, uh, I would love to see it one day. Although, if it does sell, it's optioned and it's turned into a movie, you better get that book out before the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say I want we're if we're talking about 65, I'm just stuck on one thing that that's still fresh from JFK's assassination. The rock and roll is still kind of young, so that'd be super interesting to read all that. Um 
I kind of don't want to prod, but I do. And if it's too much, don't just say pass. But how long have you not written for? Uh, well, Five Decembers was the last piece of fiction that I, I wrote. Um, and so, I, you know, I finished the first draft of that in 2019 and then uh, finished making little changes to it and probably august or something of 2021 um so yeah it's it's been since then um and i it's i think about it every day i i i research things for for my my story I, and i have a couple of like you know backup plan b and c on in case the the primary if in case i can't reach the primary objective um but we'll see so you're a lawyer full-time yes all right yeah does that come into play with not just five decembers but does that come into play at all benefit your your um your writing yeah i i think it uh, in fact i know it does um you know so so i'm a, a commercial litigation attorney and and I'm in Hawaii, uh, which means that it's a small enough legal market that no one here can really specialize anything. And, and so, you know, we all take whatever comes in the door. Um, and so pretty much the only thing I don't do is I don't do family loss and no divorces. And, and I don't do um, criminal law, at least to the extent that it puts me in court. I, I do cases that involve criminal law and criminal defendants but i'm on the civil side um and and so that gives me an, an opportunity to meet all kinds of people um and and learn about all kinds of different businesses and stuff so you know i've, I've met uh i've met u.s senators and judges and uh the last three or four governors of hawaii and um and multiple billionaires and i've met scum uh, a lot of scum and so you know it just you know it gives it gives me an opportunity to see lots of things and then it also kind of gets my you know it makes me feel more confident and gets gets me in the door to places so you know i i've learned uh that often a big a big impediment to writing can be when you don't know what you're talking about it's hard to write about it and and so it it helps to you know research and to go see things and and so for example like you know i was writing a book that i knew i was going to need to have a lot of autopsy scenes um and so i you know i thought well i've never seen an autopsy so i i managed to get myself into the honolulu morgue and and see autopsies and and it, it was it was an amazing experience and actually being a lawyer probably did not help me get in there because i was i started by sending them emails and my my uh, work email has this little thing at the bottom of the signature line about how you know this email is from a law firm and blah blah blah, blah. and apparently that puts a lot of people on edge uh and and so but when, once the morgue people figured out that i was like an actual mystery novelist and not a lawyer then they really wanted me to come and guess please come come you know put me in the book um <laughs> and at, at the time the the um chief medical examiner of honolulu is this guy's name i shit you not was dr happy um and <laughs> and 
Um, and so, yeah, Dr. Happy was, was just, you know, very happy to, to let me come into the morgue. He let me stand in a walk-in freezer full of dead bodies. He let me pick through desk drawers that had random bones from hikers and stuff. And, you know, it was, it was a great experience. And, and I don't think I would have had the confidence to do that had it not been for my day job. So yeah, it's been helpful. You have any questions about any of that there, Charles? <laughs> did you take <laughs> home any of the bones <laughs> they Sorry, probably was that well you you said there were drawers full of bones did any of the bones come home with you no no um yeah they they didn't they didn't leave me unsupervised otherwise yes maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe so uh i i find it very interesting uh the the whole universe of things that go on in hawaii are about is about as exotic for a New Yorker like me, as, as you can get, uh, I remember when the pandemic began getting a uh, care package from you uh, from Hawaii. And you said that there was a uh, rum distillery that had been repurposed to make hand sanitizer. And uh, New York was short of such things. And you kindly sent some uh, sanitizer purifier from the rum distillery. And by God, when I opened that bottle, it sure smelled of... Uh, of liquor and i loved it it felt like a little touch of hawaii showed up in uh in new york when i most needed it so i was very first of all i was touched but apart from that um it really was a delightful smell oh uh, that's good so yeah I, well, I mean i you know I, I had my own selfish purposes after spending like 20 months trying to find an editor of the book god forbid you should fucking die of a pandemic <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it's good advice you know don't die is good advice to give uh from in both directions uh, so i i really enjoyed working with you on this book i i i to be fair i it's rare that i don't enjoy working with a writer if one, once i've got a book that i want to buy that i really love uh how how could i not enjoy working with a writer but uh there have been a few <laughs> I, I will say that you have one uh virtue that many of our writers lack which is you are alive uh, a very large <laughs> fraction of hard case crime writers are, are deceased, some of them long deceased. And so yeah. to the extent that editing is required on their books, and sometimes there is editing required, uh, you know, there's an unpublished manuscript by Earl Stanley Gardner who died in the 70s. Well, I'll do the best I can without input, but it sure would be nice to have a conversation with the man. And uh, it, it was good being able to work with you and go back and forth on drafts. And you had great insights and uh there wasn't a great deal of editing required but to the extent that we ended up making any changes and there were a few toward the end of the book yeah um, it was really good it was a, a terrific experience and then i think the book is well obviously the book is successful and the book has done uh, done really well uh it might have done that without any of those changes but i i feel very good about how it ended well, up yeah i mean i, I won't get into the details of the changes towards the end but you had some really great insights but my original ending kind of sucked and, and uh, <laughs> well the, the very end of the book is actually unchanged the right last, the very the very last end, chapter but, is completely unchanged but the panel but, but use the, that the, yeah the end of the mystery portion of the novel was not a good ending um and and you help guide it to where I I can you know confidently say that I think it is a good ending now. Yeah, it, it really is. And and I I gave uh, suggestions and guidance, and then didn't know what you would do with it. And I remember getting the draft when you responded, and it was just 
uh, so much better than anything I had imagined. You know, I posed some questions. Could we do this? Could we do that? Uh, but then when you actually wrote it, and when in particular, without going into spoiler territory, when we finally encounter the villain, where you introduce the villain, uh, I didn't see that coming, which is funny because I should have seen it coming. I knew what was what had to happen. Uh, but you worked the villain in so beautifully. And uh, I was just thrilled. It's it's uh it's not always the case as an editor that you give guidance or suggestions, and then what comes back is actually better than uh, than what you asked for. Uh, but this was one of those cases. Uh, and I would say, in terms of uh, audience reaction, I've rarely had a book in you know our books have generally pleased our readers. I'm happy to say, uh, but I would say in the course of 150 plus books, there probably are only three or four that. Uh, are uniformly beloved. Uh, Charles Williams wrote a deceased, but Charles Williams wrote a book called a touch of death that uh, I don't think anyone ever said I didn't enjoy. That was very, that's, that's terrific. Uh, this one, uh, Stephen King's book, joy land. Uh, mm. But it's oh, a small, so small set of books. So, you know, more, more often we publish a book that I love and half the people say I loved it too. And the other half say, I don't see why you like that so much. This is not one of those cases. Uh, so to the but, extent anyone watching this hasn't already read it, oh, go get it. You know, the, you you will not be sorry. I can say with great confidence, you will not be sorry if you get and read this book. And by the way, get a few extra copies for your friends and relatives while you're yeah. at it. <laughs> yeah, that's why I wanted to have James on too, especially to talk about Five Decembers. Uh, I wanted to do it last year, but last year was a little crazy. Um, personal life. <laughs> I uh, couldn't get everyone on that I wanted, but I did want to talk about this because it's really, it's a good book. And the good thing about books is no matter how old it is, I mean, I got Catch-22 right behind me. I I don't know when that came out, but I know that's a hell of a lot older than I am. And <laughs> good books are good books forever and always. Um, Charles, as an editor, uh, I'm a newer editor, only a few years in. And I'm wondering, I'm always interested to hear from a seasoned person that, um, you know, uh, tips and tricks cannot talk with five December specifically, because this is uh, uh, James kind of touched on the World War Two people are like this. Of course, you're not going to make like suggestions based on like reactions of people, but it is important with historical fiction to keep things in mind. How do you address that compared to your other like okay, behind me, I keep doing that. Behind me, we got um, Joyland, uh -huh. one. That's I mean, kind of historical. That's older, but it's more modern than James's uh, Five Decembers. Um, how do you, how do you keep everything kind of in your sights without? Yeah, because yeah, it's, it's such a big, big story, man. Well, there are a couple of pieces to it. First of all, if you have an author who is as scrupulous and careful and thoughtful as James is, uh, you feel there's a little bit less on your shoulders. So the fact that I would get emails saying foldable wingtips, yes or no, uh, made me less worried that I had to catch things because it was very clear that you were catching things. You you were really concerned about getting things right. So I didn't have to be as careful. Uh, you're right that the uh, the 40s or further back, Joyland is set in the, um, I'm going to say 70s, 
That sounds right. Yeah, right. Uh, I'm going to say 70s, but I'm not sure that's right. But in any event, it's it's a period I lived through. So with Joyland, it was relatively easy. Once in a while, I'd ask a question, you know, did, did payphones cost a dime or a quarter or a nickel? That kind yeah. of question will come up. Uh, but with the 40s, I, I the good news is editing Hard Case Crime means a lot of books that were written in or at least set in the 40s. And so I have a lot of experience dealing with that period. Uh, and I'll, I, I kind of have an inner ear. So if some, if, if a price is vastly off the price of a house, the price of a cup of coffee, the price of a car, uh, I'll catch it because I know it, it should be in a certain range. Although I don't necessarily know what things cost in Hawaii or, or in Japan. Uh, but aside from that, you do a certain amount of, of, uh, spot checking. You, you see a scene and you pick one or two facts and you go on the internet and you try to reproduce them and see if they make sense. Mm. Uh, but there really, there wasn't much there that, uh, that I remember spotting. It was, it was small stuff. Even the things that you brought to my attention were, um, you know, did this street run parallel to that street? Could you get from this location to that location in Hong Kong on foot? Um, you know, would there be an awning covering you the entire way? That kind of thing. Uh, and I trusted you on that. And I, I didn't verify all the locations in in uh, in Hawaii, in, in Japan, in Hong Kong. Uh, I just relied on the fact that you really had done your research and, and I was happy to let you bear that burden. Uh, I also get the 2 a.m. emails from time to time. Uh, and in the, with this book, I, I really haven't. So I, I think we probably got it right. Well, close yeah. enough. You know, it's it's yeah. never going to be perfect. No, nothing nothing can ever be perfect, and I, it has been. So this book's been, has been, or will be translated into about fourteen languages so far, and and uh, wow. the the Japanese edition. Um, my buddy in Japan has has sent me, you know, reviews on some website that's kind of like the Japanese equivalent of Goodreads, mm. and. And most of those reviews will include something about how they're surprised that this was written by a Westerner and that I that I got I got uh, Japan so right, which mm. surprises me as well because you know I, not only have I not, <laughs> I spent some time in Japan, but certainly not, and I don't speak the language and and I've never been in in Japan in the 1940s. But then I realized that. You know, probably nobody in Japan knows what Tokyo was like pre-World War II either because it all burned down. And and so, you know, the whole thing is like a memory of a memory. And so, you know, it's just best to, to you know, do the best you can. But there's only so much that someone can do on, on things like Tokyo in 1941. But, you this might be scene. safer working in in the more distant. It didn't never really occur to me, but you might be safer writing about the '40s than writing about the '80s. Yes. yes. <laughs> just uh, without spoiling too much, the scene where we're seeing the bombers just light the shit out of uh, Japan. That was uh, that pulled me in there. I mean, sure, when I read, I'm, I'm usually like in the story, but like that was. One of those things where you try to ju you're just sucked into it, and you can't do you can't do a fucking thing. You're just getting ready to get burnt alive, and that was that was terrifying, man. Um, I'm I, I really I, I love war stories, and the best ones are about the people and their experience. And what you did was really neat because you wrote about 
pretty much the most obsessive war that we have had to date. And and you did it without it being at the center of the stage. And that's really interesting. Like there's zombie for jump into horror books. There's like zombie stories where they're just in the background. They're just there. And that's really cool. Um, I'm wondering if that was intentional. I feel like it probably had to be, but maybe it, it wasn't. Yeah, it was. I mean, because so this is a, a character driven story. And so, you know, everything that happens is seen and, and processed through Joe McGrady's mind. So, you know, he, he wasn't going to be in a position to have, you know, like deep thoughts on what Curtis LeMay's war plans were. He was just on the receiving end of them. And, and you know, and I didn't want it to turn into, you know, some sort of Forrest Gump thing where Joe McGrady kept bumbling into like historical things, you know, historical events uh, all the time. Uh, you know, the, there were his, historical events unfolding around him but like the zombie example you just gave that that was what was going on in the background and that was the reality he was having to work through in order to you know get his life back on track um but it it wasn't it wasn't ever supposed to be the main focus and it it's interesting i think you know this is maybe uh, like uh, because it's uh, a world war ii story and it starts in hawaii and the main character is a uh, Honolulu police detective and it starts just two weeks before the attack on Pearl Harbor you would expect to see the attack on Pearl Harbor but Joe McGrady isn't even on this side of the Pacific when that happens and you know the only thing he ever heard, hears about it he's in a jail cell um, and and so yeah it's just it focusing on the the perspective from which the story is being told helped help me avoid that problem Charles, I got something else I want to jump to, but I don't want to interject because it feels like you got something to say, and I would love to hear. No, it. no, no, you go, you go right ahead. Um, my very first reaction with the murder scene, and please jump in to tell me if I should just cut what I'm about to say. But <laughs> when there's a death of a Japanese girl, the contemporary reader in me is like, "Holy shit, that's ballsy to write that," but. But at the same time, um, at the same time, I'm a history nerd. I want to go as far as to say I'm a historian because I feel like that's like your whole life, and that's that's certainly a big part of mine. But but World World War One, mainly World War Two and the Korean War are what I mainly love. So that era of forties and fifties, and I bring all that up because. That you wrote it true to the story, and I feel like there's no holding back as a fiction writer. There's no holding back as a historic. Um, if you want to write a historic fiction, don't hold back. Totally right? agree. Uh, what was the story? Uh, you you said somebody on one of the one of the conferences you went to, somebody asked you what it was like working with hard case crime sensitivity readers. Oh boy! Oh. Yeah. Uh... um yeah i was i was on some panel it might have been for the edgars or or something and all of the other authors were talking about how difficult it was to get get uh their manuscripts through their publishers sensitivity readers (laughs) and and yeah i I mean i don't i don't know if 
we, the hard case crime family, have a sensitivity reader, but if we do, she probably that's like a side job for her when she's not at a strip club or something. But um. <laughs> we we have no sensitivity readers. We uh, we never will. If if there ever were a sensitivity reader, it would be somebody who puts in more insensitive things uh, with with a, with a salt shaker. Um, we had this with the cover, right? So we right. we had a beautiful cover painted by an Italian. Uh, artist, a woman named Claudia Caranfa. She did a gorgeous job. And no sooner was it uh, shown to everyone. And it, in fact, is the scene with the bombers that you found so compelling. And no sooner did we show it to people than people started saying, well, yeah, it's a beautiful painting. It's gorgeous. But you can't put a naked woman clutching a sheet to her chest on the cover of a book in 2020 or whatever year it was. Uh, nobody will carry it on the subway. Nobody will want to admit that they bought it. You're going to cut into your sales. This is not going to work. And we went through a process of trying to crop the picture. And uh, we we tried a version that had no picture, a version that had little line drawings on it, because we wanted to be responsive and didn't want to hurt the book's chances of success. And then finally, in the end, we said, this is who we are. We have mm. books that look like this. They have naked women on the cover, uh, clutching sheets. That's what we do. Uh, the man is naked, too. It's equal opportunity. He's got a gun. <laughs> And yeah. that's what we do. Naked people with guns and sheets. And you know what? If people don't like it, they don't have to buy our books. Well, this book with this cover is now the most uh, successful book we have ever published in terms of copies sold other than Stephen King. So out of 150 plus books, that's 147 or 146, whatever it is, uh, that sold less well. And I can say with great confidence that the cover art did not uh, harm the book in the slightest. Yeah. I mean, I can't say that for sure, because who knows? Maybe it would have sold twice as many with a different cover. But I don't think so. You yeah. have to just be who you are. You know what? I, the, sorry. Go ahead, uh, James. Go ahead, man. I, I uh, So the, the founder of my my firm is this 83-year-old madman who I love. His name's Bert. And, and I showed Bert... Uh, a copy of the you know the cover we ended up going with but in this process i also showed him the one of the, the sort of less racy traditional 1940s style hardcover cover concepts that had been come up with and he looked at that and he looked at me and he said i like the one with the legs <laughs> <laughs> you know it, i kind of laugh at that the can't show racy stuff then what the hell is the majority of romance novels their cover is going to be considered because that i'm no expert in that genre but i've seen a lot of those covers and they're they're like that with very good looking men and women um as far as i wanted to comment on the sensitivity reader thing um i'm not here to make fun of one mindset or another same thing with trigger warnings just for anyone that's going to be an asshole about this, potentially, <laughs> I don't speak for Brennan or Erica, but my opinion is that uh, one or two people are not the authority of every general reader. But if you feel like it's, um, it feels like it's your path to do that as a publisher, I get it. I didn't use them for when I edited an anthology for um, horror westerns. Uh, we stuck to historical fiction. So like uh, one of these stories had living room 
for example. And I was like, I looked it up. That didn't exist back then. But my whole point is, is um, trigger warnings or, or, or sensitivity readers. I get it. I'm not mocking anyone that likes it. I don't want it personally for myself. And if that's going to come with someone saying some cruel things, I'm used to being called some terrible things at this point. So I'm with you guys. Uh, and I mean, I, I agree that that no no one or two people should be the authority on it. And I think it, it really comes down to the author and then what the publisher is willing to publish. And, yeah. and so I feel like, you know, I'm my own sensitivity reader and, and there is a tension when you're, when you're, uh, you know, I consider myself to be a decent person and I'm writing about the 1940s and a war that was decidedly indecent and, and, you know, there there are certain things that I did shy away from doing that I know that, you know, that characters would have spoken certain words out loud that I'm not going to write. Uh, but then there are other words that I wouldn't say in ordinary speech today, but that I would have to write because, you know, like the word Jap was used in headlines in the New York Times. Right. And, you know, you're not going to avoid that word. It just mm -hmm. can't be done if you're writing about the Pacific War in the 1940s. It's not going to happen. And and so it's how you employ that word. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it, it wasn't like I was mindlessly going out there thinking like, I'm going to write whatever I want and everybody else can go screw themselves. Like I, I did certainly have these things in mind. Um, and, and it's just, you know, how can I balance what is real and true with what will propel this story forward and what will make it a readable book? And, you know, I mean, they're like Raymond Chandler is a great writer and beautiful stories. And there are so many cringy things in those books uh, that, that no one could get away with writing today and nor should they. But, um, and so, you know, it's just, but, but you can't, I didn't want to write something that was so stripped of, of that reality that it was like the sort of my little pony version of world war two. So, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. And back to my main point is, um, but as a historic, like a, as a modern reader, I was just thinking like, Oh man, that's ballsy to write that because I think let's just call it what it is. You're a white dude. I don't know. I'm not going to assume you're straight or not. Cause I, I just, I don't know, but you're a white dude. And with being a white dude, writing stuff like that, you're going to get more heat for it. It is what it is. Um, and I'm a little cautious with saying this stuff. I'm not going to cut this, but um, it's, it's a hard conversation to me personally to have right now, but I think it's worth having the conversation because we're living it right now. And um, especially as a writer and a, a historic nerd, I, I think that it's uh, no one's doing the right thing by filtering out and whitewashing what the past was like. I'm going to write Korean War stories and they Koreans, Chinese, Chinamen, they had some pretty nasty words to call each other, Americans especially. And I'm not going to shy away from writing that because I'm. At the end of the day, this is my advice for newer writers, actually, what I wanted to say. At the end of the day, if you can sleep with yourself and you're happy and proud of your work, you can't control what other people say. But I did want to bring that point up because um, 
of that scene where there's a dead Japanese girl because it, it hit me too because I'm sure something like that has happened and um it's been like a year or two since I read the book but wasn't she with a American mm-hmm. okay yeah. yeah so so yeah that's right because it got me thinking like that probably happened all the time just like in the early days of America with um with a uh, colored people and, and white people or or like in the early aughts with like uh um arabic muslims and um whatever other race because it, it, it's just it, it happens in certain times it's gross but and it's hard to read but it makes you think and i think that was a really uh sticking point with your book because it happened so early on which made it powerful um, yeah, I don't really have a question, Charles. Why don't you jump in? <laughs> no, no, it's it's fine. Look, you're 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 wrestling with something that I think everyone in publishing and on the writing side, the editing side, the publishing. I think the the challenge is to to write well, and that's yeah. always the challenge, whether it's yeah. on matters that are sensitive or matters that aren't. And uh, I think the better you write, the more successful you are at making characters come to life and making them uh, living, breathing people, not caricatures and not stereotypes and and not cartoons uh the more flexibility the reader will give you uh there are always some readers who are ideologues and have a point to make and and don't care about the actual stuff on the page but by and large the more successful you are at crafting a well-crafted story with real characters that uh that have dimensions to them uh the more leeway the reader will give you um and so we we have had some people who who said uh, they were shook, uh, not because of anything race related, but shook by the um, the violence in in the opening scenes, uh, the the sort of graphic description of the murder. Uh, but I don't remember anyone saying they were so shook that they stopped reading. And uh, a couple of people said, I don't usually read books that have uh, scenes of violence that are. Uh, as troubling as that uh, but i kept reading and it was a wonderful book so look there there will be people for whom this isn't the right read i mm-hmm. assume uh, frankly there are people who would probably have put down the silence of the lambs after 20 pages and said i don't want to read that i don't like cannibals and i don't like serial killers uh, and that's one of the best thrillers written in the last 40 years mm-hmm. uh, if i got the dates right maybe it's 50 years now but um you know, there, there. Signs of the Lambs isn't for everyone. Five Decembers won't be for everyone. I don't mean to equate the two; they're very different books. Uh, <laughs> Catch Twenty Two won't be for everyone. Yeah, but it's a wonderful book. Uh, you know, I've recommended All Quiet on the Western Front as a war novel. Uh, have you guys seen that time. movie? I have not yeah. seen the movie, but I've had people say to me, "I can't bear the intensity of the depiction of war in that movie," and I think there there are scenes in Five Decembers that are as intense. And memorable, you know, the scene with the uh, young Japanese soldier who uh, stumbles upon our characters at the wrong moment and pays for it with his life mm. and and, and uh, is disposed of in a most undignified fashion. Um, that's a heartbreaking scene and very intense. And I could imagine some readers saying that just got to me and, and I just I don't like reading a book like that. Uh, but you know what? You can't read Steinbeck. You can't read Hemingway. You can't read any of the great writers. Grand Mark Twain. 
at Twain, you, you can't thin, man. be a great writer without encountering scenes of emotional power. And some yeah. of the emotions will not be happy ones. And so I think the, the mark of a great book is that you can tread on these delicate, um, landscapes and leave the reader grateful for having been led through a potentially a miserable sequence of events because depicting misery is part of the artist's job. Um, I mean, do people, do people uh, stop halfway through Dante's Inferno because they find, uh, they find it too troubling? Probably not anymore, but <laughs> at some point, probably yes. Um, and you know what? It's, I see you got Stephen King sitting in the background. I I don't know how to say this. And I listeners have listened to this long enough to know. I gotta I gotta do a little forward preamble because I, I don't know how to say it without feeling like I'm a terrible person. But uh but listeners know that I have a good heart and I gotta put that out there before I say this publicly now i'm but terrified what are you gonna say stephen king's it a lot of complaints were just focused the ones that i saw on the very open scene where um a gay guy was killed yeah, and that's terrible but that's that was real that was in the 80s that was in a small town but here's the fucked up part did you happen to read the middle part where 12 year olds were in in like a you know kind of a weird hand uh, jerking off scene with the, the only girl in the group like did that not come up as like hey this is a little fucked up and weird on your radar you know what i'm saying or like you know the, the funny kids thing dying is, or whatever I, I so it was the first stephen king book i ever read and i loved it but i don't remember that scene at all now i've, I've heard people mention that scene so it must be in the book and i must have read it at age 16 or whatever i was I completely blanked that out. I remember <laughs> the kid with the paper boat getting eaten by the clown or yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever was done to him, something bad. I don't remember the scene with the one girl and all the boys, but I I know it must be in there. It's right in the yeah, middle. It's really transferred. I, I read I read it for the first time when I was uh guess I was eleven. Okay. And oh, wow. And and so yeah, I remember the sewer orgy really well. Uh <laughs> but but it wasn't until I became an adult that it occurred to me that the sewer orgy is not a scene that I would write or try to get away with writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't I, know if Stephen King would write that scene now, although I, I remember I read Billy, Billy Summers, which was one of the last two or three books he published, which I loved, a story of a, of a an Afghanistan, uh, or was it Iraq? In any event, a recent war vet, who uh, restyles himself back stateside as a hitman and has one last job to do. And cool. uh, he, he winds up um, protecting a woman who's been assaulted and taking revenge on her attackers uh, with, I think, a, a, a handheld mix master deployed in a, uh, uh, a, a pegging kind of way. And, um, you know, he still writes scenes sometimes that uh, make you... Um, make you stand up and pay attention yeah uh, just write what you want know that you know at the end of the day if you're proud of it that's all that you can do yeah do the best you can and you know sometimes you'll write something that isn't great that's okay that's the nature of art you do the best you can and then you move on uh fortunately the stuff that's not great often doesn't get published so you don't nobody nobody else will give you a hard time um but once in a while it will that's okay 
Is there any upcoming hard case crime books that you can tell us about? Yeah, I understand that in about two years, we're going to have one about Joe McGrady's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, look, to the extent that we're talking about historical fiction, I will mention uh, Max Allen Collins, who is probably best known for writing the uh, graphic novel that became the movie Road to Perdition, also called Road to Perdition. Uh, it was a very talented writer. We have uh, a new book in his Nathan Heller historical detective series. Now, he's doing something that's a little bit more like Forrest Gump in the sense that he's got his own uh, fictional detective who is involved with all the big cases of history. So he found Amelia Earhart and solved Marilyn Monroe's death and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Area 51 stuff and a whole bunch of famous cases, the Lindbergh baby. Well, this year, we're going to be publishing a book called Too Many Bullets, which is about the RFK assassination, something he's wanted to write about for a very long time. Uh, it's kind of timely since Sirhan Sirhan is still periodically up for parole. I just read a few weeks ago that he was denied parole again. Uh, and the question is, look, no one denies that Sirhan Sirhan was there in the in the, in the the Ambassador Hotel corridor and pulled the trigger. Uh, but who put him there? Who put the gun in his hand? And by the way, were more bullets fired than could come out of one pistol. And uh, so the book's called Too Many Bullets. That's a and, cool title, and that definitely is a hard case crime title. Right, it's, isn't that Too Many Bullets? And it's uh, it's an investigation of that that case uh, that involves the director of the Manchurian Candidate, and if that gives you any hints for uh, how Sirhan Sirhan might have been controlled in, um, in this universe, uh, in this book, uh, you can see how it unfolds, but yeah, that that's that's quite an interesting uh, alternate history take on the RFK assassination. Uh, I wonder uh, how many people are alive today that have personal memories of that event and will read it with that in mind. Uh, as you say, there aren't that many World War II vets left, uh, but uh, you know, nineteen sixties there are more, so it'll, it'll be interesting. I I wonder if we're going to get two AM letters about uh about that saying you know the ambassador hotel hallway was uh was not straight it was curved or yeah. but yeah. Um, sirhan sirhan probably got a lot of time on his hands to write letters <laughs> it's true and you know <laughs> i i i assume that uh, most likely he he you know wasn't hypnotized and controlled uh, through mind control and so on but in in this world i would not be surprised if there were some powerful people other than Sirhan Sirhan, uh, who were happy that Robert F. Kennedy did not make it into the White House. Whether they had a hand in making sure he didn't make it, there's another story. But uh, I, I'm, I'm sure there were people who were who were pleased. And that's uh, that's a kind of scary, scary thought. Uh, so, you know, will will there will somebody 50 years from now be writing an assassination thriller about uh, someone currently alive, but in the headlines a few years from now for not being alive sort of in a sudden way. That's, it's an interesting question. You know, how, how was there a decade of assassinations and now we're in the most politically charged moment in the history of the country um, for, for at least for a, for a century or so. Uh, and nobody's been murdered. I sort of wonder uh, whether we're on the verge of another 1960s like explosion, uh, but who knows? Hope not. There's, there's a grim good. way to take the conversation. Yeah. I just thought of uh, something that because we're spitballing about your your eventual sequel. Um, 
why she have to be in law enforcement? Why couldn't she be a teacher slash uh, activist or or a politician or a reporter? Yeah, uh, or yeah, journalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's a few other um, plot elements that I have for this book that that uh, and so that it it doesn't become some sort of unlikely amateur sleuth type thing. Um, but but yeah, I I have. I don't want to say too much in case some future translator is out there watching this right <laughs> right be in um, the future forward yeah uh but but I have told enough people one one particular story that just fascinates me um so I, I was in a, an old coin shop uh, a while back and I, I found these these bills um and I, I had I was actually in there looking for them because I had read about them because as I mentioned, I had this paranoia for like two years before the book got published that I was going to screw some basic fact up. And so one day I woke up and my my fear that day was that maybe I had Joe McGrady using some form of currency that didn't exist in 1941. I was like, holy shit, like what if they didn't have $20 bills or $10 bills or $5 bills? What were the denominations of U.S. <laughs> currency in 1941? So I started researching it and on my, you know, there's rabbit holes and I went down many of them. And one story I learned is that shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the U.S. military was really worried that the Japanese were going to come and do it again. And that when they did, they would invade and occupy the Hawaiian Islands. And they had done that in the Philippines and Hong Kong. And in those places where they had invaded and occupied one of the first things they did was they rounded up all of the hard cash and they confiscated it and they replaced it with these Japanese military yen. Oh, um, shit. I didn't know that. Which, which were uh, valueless then and valueless more so after the war. And then they would take that cash um, and to places, neutral places, uh, like particularly Macau, um, where they could um, trade it for, you know, war material that they couldn't otherwise buy uh because of sanctions and so so the u.s was really worried that that was going to happen in hawaii and that the japanese would end up with millions and millions of dollars of u.s currency and take it to macau and buy oil and whatnot and and so they came up with this plan which is basically like marked money in a bank heist in which they required everybody in Hawaii to come down to a, a military processing center and hand over all of their cash. And in return, they got 1934 bills uh, that they had pulled out of the treasury in San Francisco, and they had stamped them on both sides with the word Hawaii. Um, and, and so that was the only legal tender in Hawaii from like about probably early 1942 to the end of the war. Um, and you wow. could you could take that back to the mainland with you and spend it there, but you couldn't bring money from the mainland to Hawaii and spend it here because it wasn't marked. And that way, if the Japanese invaded and they got all the, the marked money, uh, the U.S. Treasury could tell all banks in the world to dishonor it because the Treasury would dishonor it so that it would be worthless. Holy um, shit, that is fucking smart. <laughs> and, and so... so uh, people in Hawaii then and now are really good at stuffing cash under their mattresses. And so this program was really successful in that 
a lot of money was turned in. It was something like $280 million in cash got handed in. And in 1941, that was a lot of money. Um, and logistically, the army couldn't figure out a way to get it back to the mainland, back to the mint there. And they also didn't want that much uh, unmarked, plain, normal, perfectly usable cash going into the economy and causing inflation. And so what they did is they burned it all in Hawaii um, <laughs> in a sugar mill here. They started out in a crematorium near downtown, but that was too slow because the you, know, you can only fit so much into a coffin-sized space at a time. So they, <laughs> they, they took over a sugar mill in Aia and, and used that. And and so that you know they just got like regular privates from the army to burn two hundred and eighty million dollars in perfectly usable cash, <laughs> and tell me that's not a great setup for a heist story. Um, so <laughs> yeah, write that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, so yeah, and and you know a heist story with a long tail that kind of you know ends up in the nineteen sixties in the Vietnam era, and anyway, I'm still trying to figure out how to put it all together, but I will. You will. I have confidence. I am the proud owner of one of those stamped Hawaii bills. And there's yeah. only one reason I am. And you're looking at that, man. See, <laughs> <laughs> so wow. Uh, $280 million? Is that what yeah. you said? Yeah. Two, okay, okay. I got an inflation converter right here from 1941. Oh, nice. Yeah, it would have been in the billions. Oh. Uh, yeah, my computer keeps effing up on me. <laughs> Okay, there we go. It's a large number, that's for sure. Let's see. So eh, today I got the little pinwheel. Um, I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. We'll 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 make guesses like the price is right, and we'll see which who's, <laughs> who's the closest. Uh, I wonder how easy or hard it would be to spend currency, old currency, as opposed to even even today. I remember turning up some. Uh, envelope in my dad's drawers at one point he salted away $20 bills that he had gotten mm -hmm. in 1974 and if I went and tried to spend a 1974 $20 bill now would yeah, I, I would, I would I feel safe, safer taking it to a bank than to a corner store because you know the, the bank they would listen to you about you know the part where it says this is legal tender and everything and and, and but at the corner store they might just call the cops <laughs> they, they they might uh it's true i i uh, be interesting to base a story on that uh in yeah. one way or another i don't yeah. know i mean the, those stamped hawaii bills are still you can still spin those and it's worth its face value but you could sell it for a lot more than the face value so no one spins them but um, that so it'd be, it'd be <laughs> this is a lot do you guys have any guesses before I... well i i thought i heard you utter the uh the letter f so let's say five billion five billion seven hundred thirty million two hundred eighty five thousand seven hundred fourteen dollars and 29 cents you know that would be worth Whoa. running a few stop signs for yeah. <laughs> now that's today if if uh if your later period is the 60s it's worth less than that but it's still right. still a large amount oh, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a fun premise i mean there are there are a lot of things you can do with that and and i like the idea of the uh, i like the idea of the girl just have to figure out who she is and what's going wrong in her life and why is she unhappy and so on <laughs> yeah. uh, who whose daughter would she be 
I'm oh, guessing. McGrady, McGrady and Sachi. Yeah, that that's what I figured. So she would have grown up in Japan, or uh, probably. Yeah, I mean, it you know it would occur to me that after all of his experiences and his unemployability with the Honolulu Police Department after killing his captain, that, <laughs> that happened. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, right. If anyone's made it this far into the interview, then... <laughs> they, they deserve what they get. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it would seem that McGrady's natural next job would probably be with the OSS and then the CIA. And so, you know, his daughter would probably have grown up all over the place. That makes sense. Damn, I, cool. I buy that. Yeah. Well, very <laughs> interesting. One day we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. So, now this is the part where we kind of wind down, and uh, I'd love to know. Uh, we'll start with you, James, and then Charles. What are you currently reading? Uh, right now, I am currently reading a book um, by my friend Eric Redmond. So it's it's I'm he it's getting published next year. So this is his sequel to a, a Hawaii set mystery that came out last year. So I have just started it, and then. I am also on the side reading The Guns of August. Excellent choices. I have a uh, book here on my bedside table, Retreat from Oblivion by David Goodis. Uh, Goodis was a wonderful noir writer. Uh, We published one of his books called The Wounded and the Slain. Uh, This book was never published in paperback. And uh, what have you got there? well anyway david goodis retreat from oblivion there's probably a good reason it wasn't but uh we'll see if if i read it and it strikes me as the sort of thing hard case crime fans might enjoy reading maybe we'll bring that back that'd be awesome uh yeah i was gonna show you what i'm currently reading it's a thick bastard owen king's uh the curator this is um more along the lines of like a kind of like a fantasy it's really neat but something i wanted to show you is the interior pages oh nice I just don't see that too often. It's really cool. That's that's terrific. Yeah. Um, he doesn't have a whole lot of books out, uh, but the books he does have out, they're really they're really something special. Um and I just grabbed this, Don Winslow, City on Fire. The sequel comes out. God, the sequel comes out very soon, I think next month. Um it's definitely worth picking up about the Italian and Irish. Mobster, um, mafia war in the eighties. That's really, that's really neat. Um, where can people follow you, James? Um, well, while it still exists, Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair. Uh, how about you? How about you, Charles? Where can people follow you? Well, we we have a website for hard case crime, hardcasecrime.com. You can see all our books there. Read excerpts from each of them. Uh, on Twitter, as you say, while it exists, we're hard ca- at Hard Case Crime. I used to tell people they could find us on Instagram, but you can't anymore because we got hacked and the hackers are in control of the Hard Case Crime account. Oh, I shit. tried to notify. Yeah, this is this is in real time. They they uh, they fished me successfully. Yeah, I thought uh, that you. Oh, fuck. I thought you got that sorted out. No, no, no. It's uh, we have gotten zero response from Instagram. So right now the hackers are in control of the account. I can't get in. So if you see any uh, really attractive offers on cryptocurrency from the hard case crime <laughs> Instagram page, uh, feel free to take them up on it. They may be great offers, uh, but they're not coming from me. <laughs> that's so, that's that's fucked up. Yeah, it's okay. You know, we we are all victims of crimes once in a while. This is better than being hit over the head and having your wallet taken. 
That's true. Blue collar crimes are better, I suppose. Yeah. Um, you can follow me at PR McDonough on Twitter until that's gone. Um, you can follow the podcast at Dead Headspace on whoever social media you go on. Final thoughts. Uh, we'll start with you, Charles, and then you, James. Uh, I'm just thrilled to be on the show again. I'm glad you asked us. And it's a, it's a really nice opportunity for the two of us to to communicate. We uh, haven't had that much occasion to talk in, in, in person, not at all. We haven't actually been in the same room once uh, on the phone uh, a couple of times. Uh, but this is this is our first proper face-to-face meeting, really. Oh, wow. And yeah. uh, so I, I'm glad you arranged it. Thank you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. no, this this was a real pleasure for me for that that same reason. I mean, we've talked on the phone a few times. Whenever I get really drunk and sad, I, I watch Charles accepting the Edgar Award for me on YouTube. And... <laughs> I'm sorry you weren't there. You know, I I, yeah. I, I thought uh, it's an awfully long flight from Hawaii, and it is a in. it's a really long way to go, especially if you're pretty sure you're not going to get the award. Well, right, exactly, and up to the last <laughs> second, I was pretty sure. You know, um, somebody from MWA came over to the table before the award was announced and said. Um, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he's a sweet guy. He's a great guy. I would have loved to see him, but I told him it's probably not worth flying all the way from Hawaii. And then, uh, that person left my table and I thought, okay, that was the hint. It wasn't worth your flying. Therefore we're not going to win. And so I was a hundred percent convinced at that point that we weren't going to win. And five minutes later, they announced that, uh, yeah. five December's won. So that it took me by surprise. It deserved it. I'm very grateful. It was not inappropriate, but uh, I was shocked and, uh, um, I'm glad. Well, it yeah. So that, 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 you know, 22nd YouTube video is the most I've seen of you. So it's been <laughs> nice to, to catch up here today. And I appreciate the chance, Patrick. Oh yeah, of course. Um, Charles, what was that moment like? Well, look, I, I I was honored to get up there and and accept on 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 your behalf. Uh, it was thrilling. We have only won an Edgar once before. We've been nominated half a dozen times, but um, in our very first year, we won for the Confession by Dominic Sansbury in the category Best Paperback. You know something funny? I remember Dominic sending me the manuscript saying, "My editors at St. Martin don't want to publish this book because they say it's too dark." And I said, "That sounds pretty good to me. Let me let me see it." And now this one, and it's like, can you imagine being the editor who passed on this book, being nope. one of 24 editors that passed on this book? It, it, it would break my heart if if I were that person. And so I, I'd much rather be the editor who gets to stand up and say thank you than one of the 24 editors who has to hide their face in the uh, chocolate mousse, you know, behind the little cup of whatever dessert they give at the banquet, because they were all in the room, right? If, if, if they yeah. were mystery editors, they were sitting in that room and... Uh, I, I don't envy them. I was grateful that I, I got. <laughs> I, I got a few months after that. I was in Italy and I got an email from a lovely guy who's an editor of a big company. I won't mention. And he asked if I could review this book for his author, which I did. And it was one of the best books I've read. But he said that that uh, Five Decembers was the best book that he had read last year. And he congratulated me. And I you know, I thanked him. What I didn't say is you personally <laughs> turned this book down. Oh my God. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, this is an opportunity to show great. Right. Yeah. No, and, and I don't know if we did this on here, but you, uh, James, you got a big following in Bulgaria, you said. Uh, yeah. My, uh, my Bulgarian readership seems to be pretty alive and well. 
It's kind of so random. It, it's hard for me to figure anything about what's going on over there because I, I can't type in Cyrillic on my keyboard and, and I don't even know where to begin to start on that. Uh, like I, I can write Chinese, which means that I can, I can, you know, do searches in Japanese on those websites and figure out what's going on over there. But um, yeah, Bulgaria is like a black box. So I just, I hear that it's doing well and they, they wouldn't think of publishing me under a, a pseudonym because they apparently can market me under my real name, which looks like, I don't know, it's in Cyrillic. So I guess it's not exactly my real name. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know what? I gotta ask, I, this just popped in my head, but the Japanese readership were that, you know, of, were any of them offended by anything you wrote? And I'm asking for a personal reason because I don't have a lot of opportunities to get this. I mainly hear and see feedback from Eng English dominated countries. So right. Well, so I, let me say this with, with one big caveat and that's that as far as i can tell from what i know about my japanese clients and my japanese friends and my travels to japan is that japan is an extraordinarily polite and orderly society so i don't know that they go on goodreads and amazon and trash books that they don't like in the way that we might do here right uh, so it may be that what I'm seeing is a very skewed sample of people who like the book well enough to go and say something nice about it, and that there's a complete absence of people who didn't like the book but just don't talk about it. But from what I've seen, yeah, that people seem to really like it and respond to it, and, and in particular, the portions of the book that take place in Japan, um, and, and they find it, you know, I mean, it, it's it's an American book and it tells the story of, you know, the American victory in the war, but it's not an anti-Japanese book in mm -hmm. the way that a lot of Pacific war stories are. Yep. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more surprised that, that it's getting a good reception in Germany. It came out there two weeks ago. And if there, I mean, Germans are kind of the only country that don't, that, that doesn't come off as a, a good country in this book. <laughs> so is it, you know, like the, the Nazis were the bad guys behind everything. Um, but yeah, the Germans seem to like it too. That's great. And you know what? Sorry for harping on this, but it sticks in my craw when I see so often. It's usually kids my age. Um, it's a kid, but I'm, I'm 34. And uh, it sticks in my craw when I see something to the extent of you can't write outside of your insert whatever, your race, your gender. And it makes me sad honestly and it makes me sad because if you put in a good heart i mean this is i wasn't planning on talking mm -hmm. about this but it's just talking to you guys make me think about this because that i mean books are supposed to bridge lives and, right. and, and hearts and and they should and, and i don't think there should be any hard rules about that i i don't think that that I managed, I, I don't think that Five Decembers is an example of someone doing that successfully because Five Decembers is written so closely from the character of a straight white man that, you know, all he's doing is observing other cultures through the lens that's very much his own lens. So it's not like he's, I'm ever writing from inside the head 
of somebody who's not a straight white American man. So that I don't think there's any real magic trick there. I think it would be, you know, where where I might start worrying about crossing those lines is if, you know, I were to write a story about Joe McGrady's biracial daughter. Um, you know, I could see people saying, you know, you you can't do that. And, and I can understand why. And, you know, and I could respond from my own personal life. Well, hey, you know, fuck you. I have a biracial daughter and I've been participating in her life and I'm watching her grow up. And incidentally, if we're getting to the end of this, I should just throw this out there. When when I first got the cover, like the very first picture of the cover of Five Decembers, my daughter was two and and so I showed it to her because, you know, we're going to get a wide range of opinions. <laughs> and and so I, I showed it to her and she jabbed her pudgy little finger right at right at the woman. And she said, Mommy. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. And, and uh, you know, she didn't say like that salacious or, you know, <laughs> you can't print that or anything. She just said, Mommy. <laughs> um, so then I asked her, you know, well, who's this like muscle bound man back here? And she looks at that for a while and tilts her head this way. And, that, and she says, Sid, who is the guy who was retiling our pool at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that, that, that tells you all you need to know about Sid. Yeah. <laughs> bastard. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I guess my point of bringing that stuff up is just talking, just writing about the culture itself. Um, I didn't even really understand what I was going at when I first brought that up about, um, how you can't write about this or that, but like writing about the cultures themselves too. Like you, you did your, yeah. you put in the work and it shows. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it five December's had a, a kind of easy out from that trap because it was written from that. I mean, it's very, it's very easy to write from the perspective of an American abroad. It would be, you know, like I, I know a guy sort of on Twitter um, and he, he and I chat a lot, um, but he's he's a white guy and he's written a series of books uh, about a Chinese detective in China. And and they're good books. They're good books. And he's a good writer. And, you know, the, I I got to know this guy because he went to the the uh, Mandarin Training Institute at um, Taiwan Normal University in Taipei and where I used to live next door. And um, and so he speaks Chinese. And so, you know, he, he has great qualifications to write these books except for one. And, <laughs> and no one will forgive him for it. And it, it's a pity. Uh, but, you know, it's also like I've seen what happens to people who try that. And it's like a cautionary tale and so you know it is something that you know having gone through what i went through because of the marketing department i don't want to go out there with you know already having two strikes against me so you know it's it's sad but it's the kind of thing that i have to think about before i start a story in uh, conversations like this sorry charles uh i'll I'll just say this uh i think it's it's uh if i were new newer writer and i was listening to this i would i think it would be helpful i think it'd be beneficial i don't know what people are going to take away from it but i just hope it helps people that's that's pretty much what 
the majority of the show's goal is to just see, you know, with the video, see the people, see some kind of connection that's the next best thing from in person and hearing the conversations that aren't always easy. Um, Charles, what were you going to say? No, I, 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 I believe strongly that any writer should write whatever that writer wants to write from whatever point of view that writer chooses. Uh, but we do live in the real world and we do have to, I agree that you have to at least think to yourself, uh, what will the consequences be of the choices I make? You know, you, you only have time to write so many books in your life and you have to pick, uh, you always have more ideas than you have time to write. And as long as you're picking, you might as well pick one that's not going to get you lambasted if you have two ideas that are equally exciting to you. Um, but I, I think it would be a shame if a writer has an idea and believes it's a really good one and wants to write it, is enthusiastic about it, and it would be a good book. I think it would be a real shame if that person didn't write it solely because of fear of how it would be received because of a mismatch between the author's personal attributes and the characters, the main characters. Um, I think it would be a reasonable decision for the author to make, but I think it would be a shame. Uh, when I was in my youth writing short stories for magazines, uh, I would just write stories set all over the place. And sometimes I'd make mistakes, but I remember writing a novelette that um, I'm still proud of today that was set in the 11th century in China. And I'd done a lot of research and it uh, featured two brothers um, and they were two Confucian brothers in 11th century China investigating a murder at a Buddhist monastery. So ample opportunity to offend people of all of all categories. Um, and I'm a white guy too, but I didn't not write it. I had a, an idea I thought was terrific for a story I was very excited to write and I wrote it. Now, a short story is going to come in for less criticism than a novel because nobody reads short stories. So <laughs> you can you can write whatever you want. It comes out in a magazine and a month later it's gone and who reads yeah. it? <laughs> but I'm putting out a collection of my own short stories. Uh, it's been 20 some odd years and I have a bunch that I like. Oh. I'm putting out a collection in 24 and I, you know, I had to decide which stories am I going to include? Am I going to include the one about the two Chinese brothers? And yeah, I'm going to include, it. it's a good story. And if somebody doesn't want to read it, they don't have to. Sounds really um, interesting. Well, I, I hope you hope you like it. It's the world's first gunshot murder. Guns didn't exist <laughs> yet, uh, <laughs> but fireworks existed. And yeah, fireworks yeah. are projectile weapons. Mm -hmm. And um, so the world's first gunshot in the 11th century. Wow. Interesting story. So, you know, should I not have written that because I'm not Chinese? No, no. I, you know, I, I did the best I could. I'm sure I got some details wrong. But uh, you know something? If you think there are very few World War II veterans left, there are even fewer people who remember the 11th century. So yeah. <laughs> I, I feel pretty safe. Yeah. 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 Good call on that one. <laughs> My final thoughts are, as I appreciate you two for being here tonight. It was really interesting. The book's amazing. It was my favorite read of last year. Um, it was last year that I read it, I think, <laughs> or two years ago. Forgive me. Time is meshing together. But um, it, it's just always fun talking to you, Charles. And it sounds like Hard Case Crime has a lot of really cool books on the horizon. Well, thank you. I, I, I look forward to keeping it going as long as I uh, reasonably can. And if we have submissions as strong as this one, or even half as strong as this one, we'll be in good shape. Yeah. Have you ever thought of having George V. Higgins books come through? Because those are 
Those are some books that I've started to recently read. It's funny you should mention that. I, I will give you one last story to go out on. I um, I was approached by someone who said George V. Higgins wrote uh, 10 books that never got published. What the fuck? <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. And, Holy uh, shit. His, his first four or five, he burned. Oh, okay, news to me. And uh, but there were others. And so I went through his papers, you know, he, his papers are at a university. I went through his papers and there weren't 10 uh, because some of them were burned and some were lost. Uh, but there were two. And I was very excited about finding unpublished George V. Higgins. And there are two unpublished George V. Higgins novels. Uh, unfortunately, I have to say there's a reason they were unpublished. And um, if you think there are third rails that you cannot touch in modern day America or modern day uh, world. Uh, and you imagine what the worst of those third rails might possibly be. Uh, and then you imagine putting that in a, in a book, um, you'll be close to what one of the George V. Higgins unpublished oh, manuscripts oh, no. is. And so I was reading it thinking, oh no, he's not going to go there, is he? And the thing is, it's it's not so it's a combination of very sensitive stuff that you wouldn't publish. And I would still have done it if it had been good, but it wasn't good. And so those, I'm afraid, are destined to stay unpublished. Mm. I think his his I, I assume uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle must still be in print. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the big ones are still in print. Uh, I, I'd love to do a George V. Higgins. But sadly, the only two unpublished Higgins novels that I found are uh, are not great. Um, I wish they were better. That's a shame. Friends of Eddie Coyle is a good book. It's yeah, a great, great movie too. Kogan's Game. Um, I think that's still in print too. Uh, I'm thinking Digger's Game. Is that the one? I'm thinking that I you know, my 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 memory for titles is terrible. So I for some mm. reason I thought uh, there are a couple of them that are definitely still in print. But look, there are probably some that aren't. I'll I'll do a bit of research. If there's a good Higgins, I would love to publish it. Yeah, that'd be cool, man. Yeah. Um, all right. Next episode is 196. We're brand we recorded this already, actually last week, but chronologically, the episodes are coming out with this. Then Don Winslow, we actually talk about George V. Higgins. He is a fellow New Englander. Um, won't get into crazy detail about him, but man, that is interesting to know about cool. those two unpublished books. Um yeah, so that's the next episode. As always, you got many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking up.